Hey, podcast family, welcome back to another episode. Yes, I am still at the hospital. Yay me. If you listened to our last episode, which was on Friday, was that Friday? Yeah, I think it was Friday. Uh, Yeah, it was Friday. It was Friday. Sorry, it's been kind of a whirlwind. But on that last episode from Friday, just about two and a half days ago, we covered a new ACOG practice advisory on HPV vaccination, serving as an adjuvant care for those who were previously unvaccinated who were going under CIN2 or more therapy. So you got to go back and listen to that episode. But I am still at the hospital. No, I have not been here on Friday because I would literally go straight up nuts. I was able to go home. I was actually home quite a bit yesterday. I came into around this morning and I'm still here in labor and delivery. See, guys, isn't what we do fun? I mean, I know you could think, well, it's the weekend, kind of sucks. I mean, you should be home. I will be because my call ends at five today. So I definitely plan on having a good dinner with family and reconnecting. Hopefully, I'll be be able to go home before that. But nonetheless, definitely at 5, all to start our on-call week, which starts tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. So for those of you who are like, man, I don't know, should I do women's health care? It is definitely a commitment and is definitely rewarding, and it's definitely worth it. But it is a time commitment. Thankfully, I do love what I do. Why the heck am I talking about this? Where, where was I going? Oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Anyway, on Friday, my goodness, on Friday we did that previous episode. <laughs> and, and yesterday when I was at home kind of searching through articles, <clears throat> you know, kind of reviewing some data, and I came across a new meta-analysis that just came out. It just got accepted for print on July the 24th, 2023. All right, so that's just about a week ago. And the title of this meta-analysis is Oral Nifedipine, versus IV labetalol for hypertensive emergencies during pregnancy. Of course, it's a systematic review, and it went into a meta-analysis. This is in a great journal. It's in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. I like that journal quite a bit. Great publications come out of there, uh, and these authors did a great job. But in this episode, I'm going to explain why articles like this really, really drive me crazy and why it's ignoring a huge part of the clinical decision-making for what we should give patients when they have a hypertensive emergency in pregnancy. So let me put it to this way. We used to do a lot of oral board prep uh, years ago. Well, not that long ago, like five years ago. And then we stopped because we just didn't have time for candidates who were about to take their oral boards. And we would sit down with their case list and do mock oral boards for them, okay? Maybe I'll do that again. If you all think that's a good idea, let me know. Maybe we should start doing that. Anyway, uh, for our oral board review, we'd say, tell me about a patient, uh, you're now at bedside, and your patient who is in labor and delivery, undergoing induction, has a severe blood pressure of 160 over 110. Uh, what do you give them? And then without thinking, they just kind of go, oh, all my patients, uh, I give them IV labetalol. Okay, and that's fine. That's not incorrect. But then we ask another candidate or ask, well, why did you choose that? And the answer is always the same. Well, that because that's what we give them. Or another candidate would say, oh, I go straight for oral nifedipine. Okay, and why do you do that? Well, because the college says I can do that. Yes, the college says there are three mainline medications which can be used to rescue a patient from emergent or urgent hypertension in pregnancy. IV labetalol. PO nifedipine, and of course, IV hydralazine. Those are the standard. However, if you just memorize, I just give this patient this medication without understanding the pathophysiology of the type of hypertensive emergency that she has, then that can lead to escalation of doses or uh, a, a suboptimal response. 
All right, I'm going to explain all of this in a minute. But my point is, look, PO nifedipine for an urgent hypertension in pregnancy uh, and intrapartum is totally fine, as is IV labetrol and is IV hydralazine. However, if we tailor the medication to the type of hypertensive emergency the patient has, whether it's high cardiac output or high systemic vascular resistance, we're going to explain this in a minute, then you're more likely to have success in lowering her blood pressure. So we're going to get into this new publication, which does not address this very, very critical aspect in clinical decision-making. We're going to summarize this meta-analysis without a doubt, and then we're going to go into the details that really solidifies the idea that not all hypertensive patients are the same. And that's one of the criticisms with the current definition of gestational hypertension or preeclampsia. Those are all based on cut and dry blood pressure cutoffs and or lab uh, criteria. And that's fine. But it should be a sub-analysis on the specific kind of preeclampsia or gestational hypertension that the patient develops. And that has everything to do with the rule of 55. So we're going to get into all of this, the new meta-analysis, the high cardiac output versus the high systemic vascular resistance category ca- characterization of uh, preeclampsia and hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, and the rule of 55. Lots to cover in this episode. So hang with us because I bet you're going to learn something rather than just get going, oh, I give every patient with hypertension uh, labetalol, or I give every patient nifedipine, or I give every patient who's hypertensive emergent uh, hydralazine. I'm going to get you at the end of this episode to go, ah, well, based on this patient's blood pressure and the rule of 55, I will let that guide my medical decision making because that is probably the most accurate and physiological way to address a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. Not just saying this meta-analysis says to give drug X or drug Y, but we've got to think about this from a physiological standpoint. Boy, how's that for a long intro? Let's get to all the data right now. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, so before I go into this systematic review and meta-analysis, I don't want it to seem at all like I don't appreciate what these authors did, all right? Because, look, we do a lot of research. You can find our publications on PubMed and Google Scholar. It it is a pain to do clinical research. I mean, you got to like that stuff, and I do. Um, But all to say, even systematic reviews and meta-analyses, man, the amount of time that it takes to put together the inclusion criteria, to exclude the studies, to double-check it. 
Uh, it, it's just, it's a bear. So I'm super thankful for all kinds of new data that go out there because it does help to inform us, make better clinical decisions. And that's the whole purpose of being evidence-based, right? What does the evidence show? And that's only figured out um, by systematic reviews, meta-analyses, statistical analyses, and what the burden of evidence seems to show, okay? Now, having said that, when you just throw in all of the data, like hypertensive disorders in pregnancy and this kind of medication as therapy for them, without really doing a sub-analysis on the specific values, what the blood pressures actually were when the patients had the medication, then the results of the meta-analysis can get a little confusing. I'm going to explain that in a minute, okay? The title of this publication, once again, even though we stated it during the intro, is Oral Nifedipine versus IV Labetalol for Hypertensive Emergencies During Pregnancy, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And as the title says, I mean, the author's main aim, it's super clear, is to figure out which medication of the two uh, provided quicker resolution of the emergent uh, hypertensive episode and which one did it uh, the most uh, safely, all right? So which one worked the best and which one seemed to be uh, the safest. So, and both are acceptable, and as is IV hydralazine, as we already mentioned. So we're going to give you the results here in just a minute. But you see, one of the things here, one of the limitations of this study is that while they used urgent hypertension with a typical definition of greater than or equal to 160 over 110, and, and that's all the study criteria, that was the inclusion, along with other factors we'll discuss here in a minute, and that's perfectly acceptable. That is a definition of preeclampsia with severe feature based on blood pressure, which would mandate uh, antihypertensive therapy. But it's deeper than that, right? Remember that it's one or the other uh, or both together. So either systolic of 160 and or diastolic greater than or equal to 110. So that's all preeclampsia with severe uh, features or gestational hypertension uh, with severe uh, blood pressure. Same thing, okay? But one of the, the, the limitations here is that they didn't actually take a look at the at the specific blood pressure reads when those patients got the medication. In other words, was it 160 over 100? Uh, was it 160 over 110? Was it 150 over 110? So it, remember, it's either value, either the systolic and or the diastolic that's abnormal that gets thrown into the urgent hypertension class, okay? You don't need to, to be both, it's one or the other. And the difference between those two numbers, guys, between that systolic and diastolic pressure is what the rule of 55 is, and that's not addressed in this paper, okay? So in this meta-analysis, we'll go through the inclusion criteria in a minute, but in short, it's to look at all the papers that included the ACOG and SMFM uh, and international cutoff values for hypertensive disorders, 160 and or diastolic of 110, and then what kind of medication they got, either oral nifedipine or IV labetalol, and which one brought down the blood pressure quicker with the minimum dosages and still maintaining maternal and fetal safety, okay? And, and that's fine, but you see, there's a lot there in that, in that difference in the systolic and diastolic blood pressure, that delta change between systolic and diastolic, and here's why. Because if that value, if the change in systolic and diastolic blood pressure is greater than 55, for example, a blood pressure read of 160 over 100, that change, that delta, that difference is 60, right? So systolic blood pressure 160, diastolic of, of 100, let's say. That's a change of 60. 
In that case, with the rule of 55, and we're going to explain it, it'll go into more detail in just a minute. With the rule of 55, that is a high output hypertensive emergency. Okay, high output means there's a lot of volume in the certain and the set amount of pipes. And so with that delta, that difference between systolic and diastolic blood pressure of greater than 55, that's either a high volume state or it's a high contractility state of the heart. So if it's a high contractility state of the heart, then that should respond best to something that reduces the contractility. Y'all get that? That's a beta blocker like labetalol. Or in the immediate postpartum period, they would respond very well to a volume reduction agent uh, to take away preload, again, because it's high output cardiac state, okay? Now, remember, all of these have preeclampsia with severe features. But as I mentioned in the intro, there really is a subcategory of that. Hey, your patient has hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, got that, check. Hey, they've got severe features, check. Now let's do a subclassification, whether they are high cardiac output or high systolic uh, systemic vascular resistance, because those two are completely different phenotypes of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Everybody good? Or did I mess up everybody? <laughs> so remember, we're just talking about one example here where the systolic and diastolic delta, the difference is greater than 55. That's high output. Now let's take the example where the patient has a blood pressure read, again, emergent hypertension, and now it's 160 over 110. Okay, so both values are at the cutoff. That makes the patient uh, diagnostic for uh, severe features. Okay, so what's the difference between 160 and 110? Even in my Texas math, I can do that quickly without a calculator. Uh, oh, man, I just kind of threw Texas education under the bus. Why did I do that? Let's edit that out, please. <laughs> so 160 over 110, that's a delta of 50. Okay, so that's 50. So that's under the rule of 55. Under the rule of 55, that is not a high cardiac output hypertensive state. Rather, that's a hypertensive state caused by high systemic vascular resistance, SVR, okay? So the rule of 55 says if it's above that, if the change between systolic and diastolic is greater than that, that is high output hypertensive state. And if the change between systolic and diastolic pressure is under 55, it is caused by high systemic vascular resistance. Well, what do those patients need? Well, they need something that reduces something in the periphery, something that attacks systolic vascular res uh, systemic vascular resistance as its main goal. That's the nifedipine. Do y'all get that? Okay, so nifedipine as a calcium channel blocker, remember causes more uh, peripheral vascular dilation, and that's why you get the reflex flushing, you get the palpitations, you can get a headache because of the uh, fast acting uh, vascular dilation that nifedipine causes, all right? And so that's why you've got to target the medication to the pathophysiology. They're all, in both those examples, they're both preeclampsia with severe features or uh, gestational hypertension with severe hypertension. So they, the, once you hit the 160 and or diastolic of 110, you need to do something. But like this meta-analysis will soon show us, hey, if you just bunch all, bunch all the data together uh, and then throw out numbers, one is going to look better than the other. But it doesn't take into account why the other medication may have failed and why nifedipine may have looked better because it didn't take into account the pathophysiology of the specific phenotype of hypertensive emergency. Guys, 
I'm not making stuff up. I promise you this is something that's been taught for uh, at least seven years, maybe going on eight years by Mike Foley. Mike Foley is the chair of, uh, used to be the a big lead on hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Uh, I think he's still in Phoenix. He used to be in Phoenix, Arizona uh, at Banner Health. He is incredible. I mean, he's done so much work through the MFM network on hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. And I learned this, it had to be maybe 2014, 2015, that the way you prevent escalation of doses and polypharmacy for treating hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, the, the emergent category, is by tailoring it to the specific phenotype of hypertension. And I'm going to give you a publication that really does call for this change to address hypertensive disorders in pregnancy once I get the diagnosis as a subclassification as either high cardiac output or high systemic vascular, systolic vascular resistance. Did I say systolic? Sorry, systemic vascular resistance, SVR, because they really are two different complete types of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. So do you see here the criticism of just you know, having a straight cutoff, it's 140 over 90 or above, or 160 over 110. Those are super important, especially the 160 over 110, because we now know, of course, that especially in the peripartum interval, you've got to lower those to prevent severe maternal morbidity and mortality. You've got to do something. But what to do something with depends on the type of hypertensive disorder that they're having, the phenotype, and that's the rule of 55. So why don't we take a little breath here, let that sink in, let that incubate a little bit in our, in our hippocampus, uh, and then I'm going to come back and just summarize the rule of 55. We're going to cover that meta-analysis and then go over a previous publication that really begs us as clinicians, as women's healthcare providers, to consider the hemodynamic profile the hemodynamic phenotype of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy into these classifications, high cardiac output or high systemic vascular resistance based on the difference between systolic and diastolic blood pressure. All right, everyone, I think we've kind of at least introduced and set the stage for the rule of 55. And I definitely will get into the data, the publications that validate that uh, and they're pathophysiologically different, okay? And and they present at different times. We now know that those patients with preeclampsia and preeclampsia with severe features that get early onset disease, defined as less than 34 weeks, they tend to have the increase in SVR variety or phenotype of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Whereas those that get preeclampsia with or without severe features at term they tend to be the phenotype that's more compatible with a high cardiac output state. In other words, early preeclampsia or early hypertensive disorders of pregnancy tend to be with a delta, the rule of 55, where the systolic and diastolic ratio or difference rather is less than 55. And then traditionally, if it manifests as regular, you know, bread and butter preeclampsia at 39 weeks, it tends to be in general, everyone's different though, but in general, uh, a systolic and diastolic blood pressure difference of greater than 55, in other words, high cardiac output. And, and there's plenty of publications that have come out for whatever reason out of the Journal of the American Heart Association in the journal Circulation that have explained this. Now, it's come out of several other places as well, but, but the whole purpose of this episode is 
is to look at this meta-analysis that came out and said, okay, let me just give you the, the, the short of it and the results of what they found. In this meta-analysis, it seems that oral nifedipine seemed to reduce blood pressure quicker than IV labetalol for emergent hypertension. Great. You're like, well, cool. Well, what if I do if I only have hydralazine or labetalol in my institution? Well, use what you got. All three are fine. All three are acceptable. However, this meta-analysis which states, hey, nifedipine seemed to give you uh, less need for escalation of medications and seemed to reduce it quicker, that's fine. But in nowhere in this meta-analysis did they include the rule of 55 or take a look at how the phenotype, the specific kind of hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, how that affects the medication. That's really the best way to do this. And this has been Mike Foley's, Dr. Foley's push uh, for at least seven years, which is, guys, the reason that you get, you know, your intern uh, or your peer saying, man, I'm on my, you know, second round of 80 milligrams of labetalol and she's just not responding. Uh, well, that could be because you're, you're targeting the wrong pathophysiology for the wrong type of hypertension. So if she has an increase in systolic vascular resistance, if that's her flavor of hypertensive disorder in pregnancy and you're giving her, which requires basically a peripheral vasodilator like nifedipine, and you're giving her a beta blocker for a high cardiac output, it's not gonna make any sense. It's gonna require escalation of dose because it'll eventually work, but you're gonna get more medication exposure, uh, which of course could, could potentially lead to uh, more side effects. And or you're going to have to cross algorithms. So the way that you try to maximize response, guys, here's a clinical pearl, is based on the phenotype, the specific type of hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, whether it's high cardiac output or high systemic vascular resistance. All right, podcast family, before I go into the meta-analysis, send me a message uh, through our Messenger Facebook page. Let me know if you've heard of this rule of 55 or not. Um, especially if you're in residency or if you're a fellow, uh, has this been discussed with you? I mean, it really should. And that's one of my beefs with, hey, you've got three meds to choose. All right, go ahead, man. She's got hypertensive disorder pregnancy and it's urgent. Uh, you've got labetalol, PO, uh, nifedipine, procardia, and hydralazine. Which one are you going to do? Well, I'm going to choose this one. Like it's a random card you pick up from a deck. It really should be tailored to the type of hypertensive disorder, the type of specific read that the patient has. I promise I'm going to get to that publication that just came out a week ago in just a moment, but I would be remiss if I presented on this subject, if we had this episode, and I didn't point us all to the original committee opinion from the college on this topic, all right? So ACOG committee opinion number 767-767 is the one that covered emergent therapy for acute onset severe hypertension during pregnancy in the postpartum period, all right? So remember, that's committee opinion seven. Okay, I guess it's time to finally get into reviewing and summarizing this new publication. Again, this came out just on July the 24th of this year, so literally a week ago. And as, as I stated, the goal here of these authors was to see which medication uh, worked the fastest through normalized blood pressure. As the authors state in this publication, quote, numerous randomized control trials have compared the efficacy and safety of oral nifedipine and IV labetalol in hypertensive emergencies during pregnancy. They go on to say, nonetheless, the findings from these studies have yielded controversial conclusions and the optimal drug management strategy for severe hypertension during pregnancy remains inconclusive. 
To that end, they go on to say, we conducted a meta-analysis to assess the effectiveness of oral nifedipine compared to IV labetrol in terms of the time required to achieve blood pressure control, the number of doses needed, and the occurrence of adverse outcomes in hypertensive emergencies during pregnancy, end quote. All right, so there it is. That's their, their, their purpose here. That's the agenda. Let's see which one works better. But they even say right here, the results have been controversial. Some studies say, oh, oral nifedipine is better. Some say IV labetrol. And the reason it's controversial and the, and the thing that's not addressed in this very manuscript and publication is that they haven't addressed the pathophysiology of these patients. So in other words, they just look at all the studies and say, hey, if the patient had blood pressure of 160, systolic and or diastolic of 110, we're going to see what works the best. But they don't take into account the difference in those two numbers. Do you see why not doing the subclassification of the type, the phenotype of hypertensive disorder is going to vary these results? Well, I'll just say, in short, they included 12 studies here for this review. And again, it's a great publication. I'm not trying to minimize it. Uh, but the short of it is that they found that oral nifedipine seemed to perform better than IV labetalol uh, for the endpoints that they were looking at, okay? And so my criticism, as I've already stated, is, well, that's fine. What if your patient can't take that? Uh, you think you're doing a, uh, a suboptimal treatment just because this publication, this meta-analysis says to go with oral nifedipine. The truth is, I would have loved for these authors to say, although we found that oral nifedipine tends to work uh, the fastest, we did not take into account the specific blood pressure cutoffs, and we did not take into account the hemodynamic phenotypes of the hypertensive disorder and pregnancies that these patients had. That would have been a great addition to this publication. But again, Journal of Maternal, uh, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine, it's a great systematic review and meta-analysis. I'll, of course, post a link on our reference page. But now I want to get into the previous publication that makes this point very clear, okay? And it's not the only publication. Others have been uh, stating this, that there are different reasons why patients get uh, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy uh, and different phenotypes, all right? So I want to go into the publication that really does address high cardiac output compared to high systemic vascular resistance as the two different mechanisms that can result in preeclampsia with or without severe features. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone, this push, this plead to look at the actual systolic and diastolic difference and characterize them as either high cardiac output or high systemic vascular resistance is nothing new. There's a fantastic publication out of the journal Hypertension, which is from the American Heart Association, that actually covers all of this and the pathophysiology in one of the best ways that I have seen 
uh, outside of what Mike Foley has presented, okay? And this was back in 2018, again, in the journal Hypertension. And the title is, quote, Should Maternal Hemodynamics Guide Antihypertensive Therapy in Preeclampsia? End quote. Well, I mean, I, I thought about making that the title of this very episode, uh, but I didn't want to get into like, you know, copyright issues or whatever because uh, plagiarism because it, it's such a great title for the article. It's exactly what we're talking about here. But I decided to stick with the title for this episode as Rule of 55 because that's much more narrow and descriptive. But listen to that title again from uh, Journal of Hypertension back in 2018. Should maternal hemodynamics guide antihypertensive therapy in preeclampsia? And the short answer is, of course. So I just want to be very clear. I have no beef with the definitions of gestational hypertension uh, with or without severe features, preeclampsia with or without severe features. We just did a podcast recently on why we should stick with the traditional cutoff values rather than the revised American College of Cardiology and AHA blood pressure classifications. I think I did that like one or two weeks ago. So I'm all in favor of that. I'm definitely not not X-naying that at all. That would be just asinine, right? I mean, those that's a national and international criteria. But what, but what I'm asking us to consider is to go beyond that once a patient has been diagnosed with preeclampsia or hypertensive disorder in pregnancy in general, and definitely those with severe disease, that rather than saying, oh, I give all my antihypertensives in pregnancy, labetal, I just give them all. And that's fine. That's okay. But the better answer is uh, why well, I, I target my antihypertensive medication uh, to the one that's going to give the best result to prevent escalation of dose and polypharmacy. And I do that by looking at the hemodynamic characteristics of their hypertension. That is exactly what this publication from uh, the Journal of Hypertension in 2018 is asking us to do. I love what these authors say because they just get right to it. And, and I like when they do that. It's not a lot of academic-y, you know, benchmark science. It's true physiology uh, and an understanding of, of patients who have this diagnosis of preeclampsia, they're not all one flavor, okay? People are different. And in general, there's two different mechanisms by, by which that presents itself. It's super similar to like the hemoglobinopathy discussion that we had in the previous episode, right? Now stick with me here for a minute. Yes, you do genetic carrier screening. That's great. That gives you the genetic information, super, super accurate for some kind of hemoglobinopathy, right? But you still have to look at the penetration at, at the, at the uh, expression of that genetic finding. And so you still need to get a hemoglobin electrophoresis. Does that make sense? So it's very similar to that. So figure, look at this analogy. Hey, you've got a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. Okay, fine. Just like with genetic carrier screening, that gives you the diagnosis. But now we need to see more in depth what that diagnosis actually means. In other words, what's its phenotypic expression? We know you already got hypertensive disorder in pregnancy or a hemoglobinopathy, but what does that actually look like? Well, similar to that hemoglobin electrophoresis that actually tells you the penetrance, how it's actually presenting, looking at the hemodynamic variables here, what the systolic and the diastolic pressure is, will let you know if it's high cardiac output or high SVR type of hypertensive disorder. SVR is, is of course, systemic vascular resistance. As these authors state, quote, 
there have been significant advances in the understanding of the pathophysiology of hypertension in early onset compared to late onset preeclampsia. And that's largely driven by research that has defined abnormalities in the maternal cardiovascular function and circulating placental-derived androgenic factors. This leads to two main types of preeclampsia expression, high cardiac output states and states of high systemic vascular resistance. Now listen to this explanation, guys, because this is perfect. And this is what's going to lead us into the uh, tailored options for pharmacotherapy for urgent hypertension in pregnancy, okay? Because remember, I said early onset disease typically means more vasospasm, increased systemic vascular resistance. Late onset disease is typically more high output cardiac failure, okay? I didn't make that up. It's been out there for several years, and this 2018 publication from the journal Hypertension says it very, very well. Quote, Early onset preeclampsia originates from inadequate remodeling of maternal spiral arteries, causing abnormal placental development. All right, everybody, we know that. That's not the brain mind-opening part, okay? Hang on with me. They go on to say, it is hypothesized and now noted that placental ischemia induces the abnormal production of angiogenic proteins that are secreted by the villi and, on entering the maternal circulation, disturb normal endothelial function. Women with this early onset preeclampsia therefore exhibit significantly higher levels of these placental-derived anti-angiogenic proteins and significantly lower levels of pro-angiogenic proteins with compared with healthy pregnant women. This leads to increased systemic vascular resistance. So let's stop right there. We've already said it. So preeclampsia is not one box, okay? Yes, a pathophysiology we get. It's an abnormality of spiral arteries. Nobody questions that. That is legit. But those who have early onset disease, defined as less than 34 weeks, have this more vasospastic response. Now, let's go on to, to see what they say about, uh, about term or late onset preeclampsia. Quote, by contrast, late onset preeclampsia is less frequently associated with placental pathology and more normal levels of these placental-derived angiogenic proteins. Consistent with this is that late onset preeclampsia is typically associated with more favorable maternal and infant outcomes and has been associated with normal or even larger for gestational age in newborns at birth. Ooh, I gotta stop there for a minute because there's a lot there, okay? Because what we've now known for the last really about five years is that in those moms who get severe preeclampsia early on and they're associated with the SGA babies or FGR babies, this has actually been proven hemodynamically both by maternal cardiac echoes and by invasive hemodynamic monitoring, okay? You can actually show that those are definitely a byproduct, a result of the increased systemic vascular resistance, all right? So patients who have very early disease, especially tied to SGA or FGR infants, those are the ones that are much more basic spastic. But as they go on to say here, in those who have late onset disease, that's actually, that, that's likely not the case. And it's more an issue of, of high cardiac output states with normal systemic vascular resistance. All right. So they're saying that, that this abnormal implantation that happens at the moment uh, well, of implantation early on. Remember, nobody can prevent that, right? That's something outside of everybody's control. You can't affect how the placenta implants into the spiral arteries. But, but how those dominoes fall, if they fall very early on and lead to that increase in, uh, in anti-angiogenic factors, is going to lead to early onset disease. And if it 
alters that ratio, but not to a significant extent. Remember, there's now a new blood test that can look at those ratios to see who, who's going to be predicted to have this vasospastic severe preeclampsia based on this model. If that ratio isn't significantly off, then at term, they're still, like, they're still at high risk of getting preeclampsia because their spiral arteries are jacked. But it's likely a different mechanism, which is now uh, basically a high cardiac output state, either by hyperdynamic heart contraction, so the heart is contracting more, or actually an initial phase of, of that hypervolemia, okay? And you're like, well, preeclampsia, I thought they were really volume deficient in the, in the intravascular space because they're leaky. That is true. But it's a combination. It's all phases. It's phasic. And at term, in patients especially who have that high difference between systolic and diastolic blood pressure, it's a high cardiac output state, either by increased contractility, a hyperdynamic heart, which has been seen on maternal echo, uh, or increase of volume through the vasculature. All right, everyone, listen to this next sentence from this 2018 publication, because it's exactly what I'm trying to convey here in this episode. So yes, definitely treat, pay attention to urgent hypertension. We got to do something. Even antepartum, Chip and Chap said, maintain blood pressure. Try to keep that blood pressure in the moderate range. You're definitely at 140 to 90, no more than 150 over 90. We've addressed that many times before, but listen to what they state here. Despite evidence that hypertensive disorders of pregnancy have different penetration, different presentation, right? Quote, current recommendations for antihypertensive therapy during pregnancy do not differentiate therapy based on the assessment of maternal hemodynamics or indeed on any maternal physiological characteristics aside from blood pressure, end quote. Do y'all get that? That's a lot there. In other words, even though we know that a patient with a systolic blood pressure of 160 and a diastolic of 90, with that delta, that change there being 70, is much different physiologically than the patient who has the 150 over 110 blood pressure with that delta there, that difference between systolic and diastolic being 40. We know that they are physiologically different. There is no guidance. There's no widespread uh, societal uh, guideline that says treat based on that. And this publication from 2018 calls that a gap, okay? Now, why is that? Let's stop there for a minute. Why hasn't SMFM or ACOG, uh, you know, really been more vocal about this? Truth is, I have no idea. I mean, you've got people on committees like Mike Foley, uh, a leader, and Mary Dalton, who have been pioneers in this uh, for addressing maternal mortality and prevention of maternal mortality. And, and they're very, every conference this is addressed, rule of 55s, remember the hemodynamic changes, not all blood pressure is the same. But how somehow didn't get into that guidance, I, I don't know. It is a little gap. I guess the, the big picture is do something, treat them with either PO labetadol, I'm sorry, PO nifedipine, IV labetadol, or IV hydralazine. But this did get kind of get lost in translation, okay? We should be treating based on the hemodynamic phenotypic expression of the blood pressure values. All right, everyone, let's get ready to start wrapping this up because I, I hope this episode doesn't have redundancies in it. I know I've said the same thing like multiple times, but it really is super important because especially if you're getting ready to take your oral boards, if you're asked by an oral examiner, tell me which medication do you choose uh, when treating emergent hypertension in pregnancy? 
uh, ideally, the best answer is, ah, well, we have three options, Procardia, which is oral, uh, two IV options, uh, labetalol and hydralazine. And which one I use is based on her medical history, uh, her allergies to any medications, and I use the physiology, the hemodynamic measurements, what actually the two blood pressures are, to guide that my therapy. And I use a rule of 55 because I want to figure out, is she high cardiac output or high systolic vascular resistance, systemic vascular resistance, because that information will let me pick one of those three. Wow, man, that is like, that is the gold standard answer, okay? Rather than somebody just vomiting back. Oh, I give bleh, libidolol. Uh, I give bleh, nifedipine. And, and when asked why they do that, the answer is always, well, because the college says so. It means you've memorized an algorithm, but don't have any understanding of the pathophysiology. As these authors in the journal Hypertension state, quote, there are clear differences in the hemodynamic characteristics of pregnant women presenting with hypertension with early onset preeclampsia characterized by elevated systemic vascular resistance and late onset preeclampsia characterized by increased cardiac output with relatively reduced vascular resistance, end quote. Is that not exactly what I've been trying to tell you? See, so that's exactly, I love that because it's like, oh, vindicated, I didn't make this up. And I didn't. That rule of 55 guides treatment, all right? So under 55, uh, systolic to diastolic change, that's increase in peripheral vascular resistance. So that would be best served with uh, procardia or something like hydralazine that functions as a peripheral vasodilator. But if that delta, if that change in systolic and diastolic blood pressure is greater than 55, then that's a high cardiac output state. Then it requires something that affects more cardiac contractility. That's where labetalol comes in. And uh, in the immediate postpartum period, that's where Lasix could come in to try to decrease that preload. And targeting medication to these blood pressure categories, whether it's high CO, cardiac output, or high SVR, actually is beneficial. There's data for that. The authors of this 2018 publication state, quote, antihypertensive therapy for pregnant women presenting with any type of hypertension that was guided by hemodynamic monitoring. In other words, by looking, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean by invasive monitoring, just by looking at the actual blood pressure, uh, systolic and diastolic, quote, significantly reduced the rates of severe maternal hypertension from 18% to 3.8%, end quote. In other words, treating these patients physiologically by the hemodynamic patterns that are noted between the systolic and diastolic values actually is evidence-based. All right, everyone, one final reference before we close this shop up, and that's a publication from the Gray Journal, the American Journal of OBGYN in 2018. This would make a great journal club because it, again, it discusses these two subclasses of the big umbrella of HDP, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The title of this publication is Maternal Hemodynamics, a Method to Classify Hypertensive Disorders of Pregnancy, end quote. See that? So not trying to redefine what hypertensive disorder of pregnancy is. We're going to stick with that, but to subclassify based on the hemodynamic changes. And that means what the actual systolic and diastolic blood pressure actually are. All right, podcast family, I think that's going to bring us to a wrap. We've covered a lot of stuff here, okay? We covered the July 24th, 2023 publication, which was a new meta-analysis looking at, hey, does oral nifedipine work better than ivy labetalol? Hey, it did. 
Yes, super good. Thank you. Everybody, round of applause. That's good data. But it's hard to know how to interpret that if you don't take into account the hemodynamic phenotypes of these hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Because in order to do that, you have to apply the rule of 55. If the change in systolic and diastolic blood pressure is less than 55, it is highly likely that it is a result of increased SVR. And if the delta of the change between systolic and diastolic blood pressure is greater than 55, it's likely a high cardiac output state. So tailor medications to the pathophysiology rather than just memorizing that this disease gets this medication. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. We put a lot of info out there for you. And as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.